This is Julie Sates from HKA Consulting, and you are listening to the IP Fridays podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 132 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Julie Sates, and my co-host Ken Suzanne is interviewing her about damages and royalties. She's an expert on contract and royalty compliance and has helped her clients to get millions of dollars uh, in royalties and damages. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing this interview. But before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. The EOIPO has started an initiative called Ideas Powered for Business with the main slogan, Make Your Idea a Success. The link to the website is in the show notes and the EOIPO wants to educate and help companies to make the best of their business by protecting their ideas with different types of IP rights such as trademarks, designs and patents. Also, the USPTO welcomes Derek Brand as a deputy director. He is helping Kathy Vidal to run the USPTO. Also, Montenegro is on its way to become the 39th EPC contracting state. Starting from 1st of October 2022, European patents can be validated in Montenegro. Also, the UK IPO has issued an interesting guide called Licensing Bodies in Collective Management Organizations. In this guide, it tells the readers how licensing bodies and collective management organizations can agree licenses with users on behalf of owners and collect royalties the owners are owed. Now, let's jump into the interview of Julie Sates with Ken Suzanne. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Julie Sates. Julie is a partner with the firm HKA and handles forensic accounting and commercial damages issues for her firm's clients. Julie has more than 20 years of experience providing forensic accounting, financial, and economic analysis with respect to investigations and commercial damages. This includes providing expert witness testimony to clients and their counsel in litigation and forensic investigation matters across a number of industries, including financial services, consumer products, real estate, aerospace, manufacturing, fashion, retail, luxury goods, and entertainment. Julie's expertise in IP matters includes contract and royalty compliance issues, and she has assisted clients ranging from individual authors to multinational corporation licensors. Her work has included developing and implementing royalty compliance programs and performing audits of licensees around the world. Julie has also helped her clients recover millions of dollars in royalties and damages related to licensed copyrights, trademarks, and patents. Julie, welcome to the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you so much. 
Julie, uh, what is your background and how did you get into working in the forensic accounting expert witness space? Sure. Well, I uh, got an undergrad in accounting um, at NYU, and as many young people um, find themselves in a situation, I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I loved accounting and the language of accounting, but as I looked around at the typical audit and tax um, jobs that were out there, I was not interested in those at all. And I, I happened upon um, uh, a job posting in the career services office pretty late in the game as I was waiting for audit offers from the big six accounting firms at the time, now big four. And I saw this listing for uh, forensic and litigation practice. And it sounded interesting to me and forensic accounting sounded kind of cool. Um, I joke with people that it's not that cool. It's, it's not like um, CSI or anything, but um, it's really the, the process of figuring out the numbers. Um, so I actually interviewed um, with the firm. It was Coopers and Librand and quickly became uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and joined a practice working on all kinds of things that were somewhat re accounting related, um, but special projects, so to speak. And so I worked on a um, divorce for a very famous Broadway producer um, who, who was divorcing the same woman for the second time. And we were um, mutually appointed by the court to help figure out the numbers. I did large SEC investigations. Um, and then I, I quickly realized that I liked the litigation side of the business a little bit more um, because you could see a project from start to finish as opposed to a large scale investigation where um, you might get a call saying, hey, Julie, we need your help. Uh, in Kansas City, the project's only going to be six weeks, and you would end up being there for, for nine months to a year. Whereas um, the litigation projects, you might go to the attorney's office for a couple of days to look at actual paper documents in the old days, like we used to do. Mm -hmm. um, and within litigation, I started working with folks that did intellectual property disputes. Um, so I really learned IP first through patents and then got into working with copyrights, trademarks, um, trade secrets, sometimes trade dress, um, and started testifying on my own on those types of matters. Julie, how do you work with attorneys in the context of intellectual property? Sure, so I work with attorneys in a, in a variety of capacities. The first thing that comes to mind is if um, an attorney is looking for an uh, economic damages expert, and an attorney will call me because they um, either are in the middle of a dispute and need an expert, um, they're, they're contemplating um, filing a complaint, or they've just been you know, served a complaint. Um, and so my role is typically to you know, work with the attorneys, um, go through the materials, prepare an expert report, um, testify at deposition, and if it gets far enough along, uh, ultimately testify at trial. And I do this in international arbitrations, domestic arbitrations, and commercial um, disputes here in the U.S. Um, sometimes uh, I help attorneys, and I like to do this, with the discovery process. And so in, in that capacity, I can help attorneys um, draft discovery requests for fact discovery, um, I can help attorneys through um, taking depositions of fact witnesses who have knowledge about financial information. And I really like this because 
Um, it's tough as an expert if you are brought in late and you're, you're stuck with what's already been produced in fact discovery. Whereas if we can come in early, we can help with the strategy and help get the right types of documents. And I think what's really key here is that when you're in an IP dispute, um, the intellectual property might relate to one component of a product or um, a trademark only on certain products or, you know, copyright in, uh, let's say, a song. And entities don't necessarily keep financial information at that level. And so um, it's not enough to say, um, you know, to request from the other side, all of their financial information related to X. And so as an expert, we can kind of help craft the questions and give alternatives of ways we could get at the information, which is really helpful for the expert to ultimately put together um, the analysis. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned damages. How are damages different for the different types of IP from what you've seen? Sure. So, um, it, you know, there's there's general buckets and, and there's nuances with each one. But for, for patents, um, generally, the rule is that um, you can get lost profits, your lost profits as the patent holder, but in no event less than a reasonable royalty. And so um, lost profits are a lot less common than they used to be in the patent world because there are, there's, there are certain tests to prove that, that you as the patent holder would have made um, actual sales and you were, and those sales were lost due to the acts of an infringer. So um, a lot of times today um, you have what we call a, a non-practicing entity who is asserting a patent. They would never make those particular sales. And so um, the default is a reasonable royalty. Copyright and trademark, um, while they're governed by different statutes, so copyrights governed by the Copyright Act and trademark by the Lanham Act, um, have pretty much the same um, remedies and they're a bit broader. So for both copyrights and trademark, um, plaintiffs can get their actual losses. Now that's really broad. What, what is their actual loss? It could be lost profits. It could be a lost royalty stream. Um, it could be some kind of economic harm that they incurred as a result of an infringer's actions. Um, and then in some cases, there are statutory remedies for copyrights and in the case of trademarks, counterfeiting. Um, the other side of that for copyright um, and trademark is defendant's profits. And so um, a, a trademark copyright owner can essentially disgorge the infringer's profits, which means whatever that infringer made on the infringing, or I guess we could say accused sales, um, the plaintiff can claim those profits. And it's interesting in calculating that, um, both under copyright and trademark statutes, the plaintiff need only prove the infringer's sales. They don't need to improve, uh, don't need to prove any costs. Um, we can get into that a little more. Typically, you will include the cost, but really the only burden for the plaintiff is what the infringer sales were in those cases. Mm -hmm. And can you give us an example of some of the issues you faced in calculating the damages in, intellectual, in an intellectual property case? Any obstacles that you've come across when you're going through that process? 
Sure. I mean, I, I think we touched on this before. One of the main obstacles is the availability of information. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, IP is unique. Um, and unless it's, a, you know, a, an entire company is infringing um, all of their products are accused of infringing, you can't necessarily take the income statement from that company and figure out what um, the damages are. So I think that one challenge is getting the right information. Um, you know, I've done some cases with semiconductors and it has all kinds of semiconductors in the sales information and only, you know, a small fraction is infringing. And so trying to figure out which one is infringing and which one to calculate damages on. The other issue that comes up in all types of IP disputes is apportionment. So um, there's a lot of case law around apportionment in the patent world, um, not as much in copyright and trademarks, but really, you know, what portion of the, the, the product is at issue and how do, you, how do you get down to the damages for just that infringing portion? Um, and so a, a simple example would be uh, you have a plain white t-shirt and then you have a t-shirt with a, a mark that is accused of infringing. And if there's a differential in the, the prices of those products, you can probably say, okay, um, the one with the infringing mark costs $5 more than the damages attributable to that t-shirt are probably an extra $5. Um, this is overly simplistic. But um, in other cases, it's harder to figure out what the damages would be because what, you know, what's driving the sale? Um, is, is it the whole product? Is it the infringing mark? Is it the um, infringing feature? Um, there's a lot of issues with that, that, that experts need to, to take a hard look at when putting together their numbers. Mm-hmm. And besides writing reports and providing testimony as part of your, your job, um, how can financial experts help IP attorneys in day-to-day practice and issues? Well, one thing besides helping with discovery requests is I think that um, we can help attorneys manage their clients' expectations sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this works um, for both plaintiffs and defendants. You know, the, the attorney has a close relationship with the client. Um, the client often, um, if they are an IP owner, um, has very um, strong and emotional thoughts about their IP ownership. And that's not to say it is wrong, but they might have a certain value in mind. And um, at the end of the day, if an expert doesn't have the documentation or the support to get to a number that might be in a client's mind, um, we can kind of play good cop, bad cop and say, you know, we just can't get there. And that can kind of help the attorney sometimes manage their client's expectations. Because I've been in a number of situations where a client really believes something is worth a certain amount, and it very well may be, but an expert doesn't have enough information to go out there and say that's what it's worth. Um, a credible expert, I'll say, right? There are, there's all kinds of experts. There's overly conservative. There's overly aggressive. But um, I think we can help manage client expectations. I think we can also help just uh, with the with the strategy. So you know, I had a I had a dispute um, earlier this year. It was an international arbitration. And uh, it was on Zoom, but we had the entire trial team for our side in one room. And so 
we had four different attorneys, we had client representatives, we had myself, and we had an industry expert. And just having all these smart people in one room, um, strategizing and putting together closing arguments really helped because I brought a different perspective than the attorneys had, um, kind of as an outsider with a financial background. So I think, um, you know, experts can really help with the strategy and attorneys can run things by experts that might not be um, financial related, but say, how does this land to you as, as a non-technical person or somebody that, that doesn't live and breathe in this industry every day? Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you use Zoom uh, for that case that you were handling. How has the pandemic impacted your, your job? And what do you see as some of the changes going forth uh, in the years to come as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, it, uh, in the beginning, everything slowed down like it did for a lot of people in litigation, and that was a little um, unnerving, and now it's really picked back up. Um, I, you know, I, I like Zoom depositions because I don't have to, you know, my whole day is not spent getting ready, traveling, having the nerve, you know, all of that stuff. So it is kind of nice to do a deposition by Zoom, um, but I but I did have to travel twice over the summer um, for jury trials and, um, and then this, this hearing I had. And I really think that you can't replace um, the benefits of being in person for, for some types of hearings and testimony. I just think you get a, you, you get a better result working with attorneys um, face-to-face and working with the whole team because you wouldn't have the same kinds of conversations and sidebars um, that you do in person. That, that just doesn't happen on Zoom. Um, but in terms of my, my overall practice, I've been very busy. Um, I am more efficient um, at home. Now I look back and think, why did I travel, you know, in an hour and a half each way to go to an office to try and read depositions or write a report and people are coming into my office. So I think a lot of us in different professions have realized that. Um, so it's, it's good and bad. I mean, I miss, I miss walking down the hall, knocking on a colleague's door and saying, what do you think of this issue? Or have you seen that? But we're all getting better with Zoom and Teams and other types of platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, I become more efficient. Sometimes I'll just put a block on my calendar that says I'm busy, right? And then I'll say, okay, I have two hours to work on a report. Sure. Um, so I think I think moving forward, it will be a hybrid. I can't imagine ever going into the office five days a week. Um, and I think you know, I don't know. Attorneys might disagree. I think Zoom depositions are fine. Uh, but I think for, you know, real testimony and trials, it, you have to be together with the team. I just think you, you lose a lot if you're not. Yeah, I agree. Julie, let's talk best practices. Uh, what are some of the best practices you can share, uh, with our listeners based on your experience in working in IP disputes? So I think that really a one best practice is to, If you're an attorney, consult with um, experts early on in the process, because like I said, we can help manage expectations. We can tell you if there's really what the, what the numbers are um, pretty early on, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot that goes into writing a report and supporting it. Um, But, you know, we can kind of help figure out if, if a claim is worth it or not. Um, 
I, I often joke that I have a sense of where the damages are going to be within the first week or so. Now, there's a lot of work to actually get there. And sometimes I'm not right every time. Um, but I think hiring your experts or at least talking to them early. And I have a lot of clients that come to me um, that I've worked with over the years and ask me in the very um, early phases of a dispute what I think. And and I'm not asking for an engagement letter or, or, or running the meter. I'm happy to consult with people. So I think that's a, a best practice. Um, I think uh, working with an expert where you know their team and an expert, an expert doesn't need to have to have testified, you know, a hundred times. I think that the times are changing. Um, people are looking for more diverse experts, um, younger experts who are going to have, um, you know, a personality that resonates in, with the jury. Um, I think getting back to knowing your expert team, um, I've worked with a team for a number of years and, um, you know, the, the senior person who I'll call one of my lieutenants um, knows what to protect me from and what not to protect me from. So if I'm working with an attorney, they can run it by this individual. They can run a thought by an individual and say, should the expert, you know, hear that? What do you think of this analysis? Because it's important to know that once you're disclosed, everything is essentially discoverable. So um, to have somebody working on the team who can shield me from certain things um, is helpful, right? I, I don't, there's certain things that attorneys don't know if I should know or not. And then if I have a senior person that can listen to it, I'm, I'm a little bit protected in that way. Um, I think communicating with, um, with goes both ways, but communicating with outside counsel is really, really important and a good best practice. I, I have a, a recent case where there's been very little communication with the attorney and I issued a report and they didn't really have time to review it. I just felt like I need somebody to check this, right? Um, because attorneys may have a way that they like the footnotes formatted, or um, I might be saying the inf- I might be saying the accused products, and they want to say the infringing product. So, so little things like that. I think communication is really key. Um, and the other best practice is for. Um, experts, and, and this has changed, but um, being careful with drafts. So it used to be that all drafts were discoverable. A lot of those rules have changed, or um, counsel will stipulate that drafts aren't discoverable. Um, we're still pretty careful about keeping one live living version of the report on a network and not passing drafts around and not you know keeping paper copies and not having a bunch of copies in email. Um, I think that's important. At the end of the day, um, if somebody wants to depose you on a bunch of different versions of a draft, I think it's kind of a waste of time, but it's kind of embedded in me <laughs> mm-hmm. from, from my earlier days to be careful with what you say in email, what you put in drafts, um, what's, what's flying around out there. Mm-hmm. Julie, we're nearing the end of today's episode, but I have a question for you. And that is, if one was looking to hire an expert, what are some of the things that an IP attorney needs to look for when they're choosing uh, an IP expert? Sure. Well, the first thing I would start with is asking your colleagues if they've worked with an expert. Um, I think if you're looking for an IP expert, somebody with IP experience, it does it, it is important um, because there are special rules around, um, you know, damages and the certain types of remedies. And so somebody who has done that before knows what goes into a report. Um, I don't know that it's necessary 
that someone has testified before if they are senior enough in their career um, and have written reports and are comfortable testifying. And as an attorney, you'll get a sense if that person um, would do well um, on the stand, to, so to speak. Um, the other thing you can um, look for is have they had a Daubert challenge? Now, it, it's different than it was 15, 20 years ago. A lot of people in the IP space do get challenged. And it's just, you know, it's written into scheduling order sometimes. Like the Daubert motions are written in, which didn't happen before. Um, and so check if your expert or your potential expert has had one and then just ask them about it. I don't think, I don't think it's a career ender like it might have been some years ago. Um, I haven't had one and I joke, I do a lot of arbitrations and, and it's nice because you can't get challenged that way. Um, but I think it's something worth, worth checking, right? And also ask, um, does your expert do primarily plaintiff work, primarily defense work? Is it a mix? That's something to know, um, to get comfortable with. Um, and then in terms of industries, you know, I often find that attorneys are looking for a unicorn, right? You've testified in these industries, you've worked in this industry, um, you've calculated this specific type of damage. I don't know that attorneys are always going to find that. And, and, and if you have a smart person, um, industry may not matter as much unless you're in something really specific, like you're doing pharmaceutical litigation and hatch waxmen. I wouldn't put myself out there as somebody who does that, but there are folks that do. Um, however, if you're talking about one particular consumer product um, that an expert hasn't, you know, done something on that con consumer product, it probably doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Julie, I want to thank you for spending time with us today on the IP Fridays podcast. How can our listeners uh, get in touch with you if they want to talk further? Sure. So uh, you can probably find me on LinkedIn pretty easily, um, or I am at HKA. Um, consulting. Uh, and uh, my email address is Julie Sates um, at HKA or at HKA.com. It's J-U-L-I S like Sam, A-I-T-Z at HKA.com. So I, I like to throw people off. It's Julie without an E. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Julie, thanks again uh, for spending time with us on the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting IPFridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at IPFridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion 
on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.